Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. The industrial revolution is in full swing, all part of the larger digital revolution. And we've got somebody with us today, one of our monthly guests, who really has a very, very strong insight into both the industrial revolution 4.0 and the ways that the digital revolution is weaving into that and each of them sort of pushing the other forward. Tony Uphoff is the CEO of Thomas. Tony, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you. Hey, Bob, always been great to be on with you and good to see you, my friend. Yeah, and I know, Tony, when I started and saying that thing about the Industrial Revolution, it's like, wow, did this guy fall asleep for a couple hundred years? But it, it is happening all around us today, right? You know, it is remarkable, Bob. And we oftentimes talk about this notion of we tend to think these big events are going to happen far sooner than they actually do. And then we tend to underestimate the the ultimate impact of these big events. And if you think of Industry 4.0, it's the, it's the combination of so many of the technologies that we talk about on a regular basis being applied into the manufacturing and industrial marketplaces. And it, it, is, it is just amazing to see this taking off right now. And, and it, it's, you know, before we went on air, I used the expression of renaissance, resurgence, yeah. you know, and, and there's so many ways we could take that conversation. But as usual, you're watching the um, advanced series of technologies now start to enable an industry in a way that simply that industry could not adapt before. And, and it's really exciting to watch it. And it's particularly acute here in North America, Bob, whereas I think a lot of these technologies are having a disproportionate impact on North American manufacturing right now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Tony, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the one of the big ideas you had come in with today about these tech driven business models. But as a prelude to that, just I know you're very well known to lots of folks, but in case anybody is our audience here is growing, talk a little bit up front about the perspective that you're able to offer from what Thomas does. And then talk about some of those things of these really remarkable innovations in uh, business model generation. Hey, Bob, thanks very much. And I'll, I'll see if I can link those actually. So Thomas uh, uh, for industry is now celebrating its 123rd year in business. And today it's a modern data and platform company. Our core platform of thomasnet.com is the leading resource for product sourcing and supplier selection and evaluation. And so every second, an engineer or procurement professional or what's called an MRO, think of someone who might be managing a factory floor for a manufacturer like Boeing or Tesla, is selecting a product or evaluating a supplier on that platform. Mm -hmm. As a result, we're now up to close to four petabytes of ongoing buyer behavior data. It goes back 10 years. So it gives us this remarkable window into the industrial economy. So it gives us a sense, Bob, of not only products and services that are in demand, but by whom and, and for what purposes. And that gives us some just really fun and exciting insights on, on trends that are moving in and around the industry. And one of those trends that we're really watching very carefully, Bob, and we can certainly see it in the industrial marketplace, is we're starting to see um, a, a pretty dramatic acceleration of what we think of as tech-enabled business models. You know, our mutual friend, Sean Amirati, you know, if I use the expression digital transformation, he kind of, you know, oh, Tony, come on, digital transformation, that's passe. It's now about business model transformation. And he's right. What his real point there is, you know, these investments, the, the time, the learning, 
um, the data, the information we're getting and gleaning from ongoing digital transformation should enable something. And I think what, what we're now seeing is a series of tech enabled business models, Bob, that are really, really exciting. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'd throw out one or two here that, that your, your listeners could relate to. So if you think of, of some obvious ones that we sometimes turn to in the consumer marketplace, you think of something like streaming, which we've talked about before. The technology is not new, um, but, and the idea of a subscription service is not new, but putting those two together is still relatively new. You know, we really, you know, first started to think of this and hear about it back in 2007. Streaming technology had been around since the 1990s. 2007, Netflix started to really commercialize the concept. And back then people thought, well, is this really going to go anywhere? Boy, they're not debating that today. And you're seeing major, um, what we think of as broadcast networks, um, issue $3 billion of equity to start to invest. That's CBS Viacom that's just, just announced that because they need to keep up and keep pace in the what we now call the streaming wars, like the cloud wars that you, that you regularly cover. I think the other one, Bob, that I, I would mention, which I think is, is equally fascinating, um, uh, the professor Scott Galloway refers to this as rundles. And what he means by rundles are recurring revenue bundles. And boy, are we watching this just come almost out of nowhere, where, you know, before we would think of frankly, kind of confusing companies like AT&T and Verizon is sort of a mishmash of different products. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They're bundling these together and it's becoming all recurring revenue. So long way from what does Thomas do and how does Thomas uh, uh, fit? Uh, how do we glean the insights? But but I think this, this idea, and, and we're an example of it, Bob, to a great extent where you know, these newer or more advanced uses of digital technology are enabling our business today and allowing us to step into businesses we weren't in yesterday. Yeah, you're, uh, you're out on the front edge of that, right, Tony? So some of these things that you, you've talked about before, like the, uh, you know, and, and lots of folks have heard about it, but these shortages uh, that are holding up the, the production of things like cars, right? You think, oh, there's not enough metal, there's not enough paint, there's not, you know, the right sort of material for the seats, whatever, but it's electronics, right? It, it, it really is, Bob. And, it, you know, one of the things, and you, you and I have talked about this, one of the things that we're tracking is because our data gives us a glimpse into what's been sourced, but also what is being sourced, we can start to make some generalized I'll call them predictions about what's, you know, what's moving. And one of the things that we're really focused on for the second quarter of this year is we think uh, demand for PCB boards is going to rise by 17 to 20%, which in a mature category is a lot. You know, this, these, this, that's not a category that's new, but what is new is exactly to your point. You know, as the world starts to change a little bit, the range of, uh, let me call it products or services that would use PCB boards has broadened and particularly broadened in the transportation uh, you know, industry. The, these, as you and I have talked before, are sort of rolling computers. And what it's actually doing is creating a, 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 a massive amount of demand, but also a shortage. So some of the major auto companies have had to actually say, hey, we're, we may not hit our 21 production schedule because we can't get PCB boards 
or get enough of them, which seems, you know, if we'd gone back five years and said that, we would, would have kind of laughed at it. But today, you know, a, a car has become a computer uh, and it, it's kind of remarkable to see some of the trickle down effects of that. Yeah, Tony, uh, just as you were talking uh, about that, I, I had to go back. It wasn't all that long ago, right? That I believe it was Ford Motor in the Detroit area that built the River Rouge plant, right? It was almost a mile long. And, you know, uh, raw materials came in the front and a finished car came out the others. Well, they'd have to have fabs now, right? For these new electronic parts. It, it's really confusing. You know, you look at Apple's recent, you know, uh, decisions that they're going through. And, and you know, there's been some... Um, confusion from the media's point of view of understanding, you know, is Apple actually going to build a car? Are they going to license technology uh -huh. to a car company? Or are they going to do that with more than one car company? Do they maybe just work with a chassis manufacturer? You know, we live in just fascinating times and it, and it kind of cuts to the theme of what we're talking about, Bob, which is, you know, technology is now enabling really unique and different business models. So the idea that a computer company could be a car company and a car company could be a computer company is not a, a reach today. It's a reality. It's just a matter of how imaginative can we be around the business model? You know, it, we, we never thought of cars as subscription services based on technology, but that's indeed what they are today. And we never thought of, you know, an Apple computer company that one day we might be driving one physically <laughs> or having it drive us, depending on how you want to look at the evolution of technology. But I think these, um, this enablement of, of new business ideas through technology, again, Bob, what you and I are describing isn't new. I think it's starting to be applied in areas that... Um, you that, that aren't just digital, if that makes sense. And it yeah, kind of cuts yeah. to the manufacturing. So we're able to think of, you know, oh, wait a second, we can apply these technologies in, in deeply physical work and products and services that we heretofore wouldn't have thought of as different business models or ideating of them as, as a service type mm -hmm. of models. Yeah, Tony, you know, uh, just one example of that, that I, I think this is, you know, uh, two years ago, three years ago, but it was uh, BMW had offered this new program. They said for people, you don't want to buy a car, we get that. So here's a leasing program. And they had, I think, three tiers. And if you went to the highest, each of the tiers, you had options, right? If during the week, you want to have your uh, coupe to drive to work, great. And on the weekend, you want the SUV for more family or things, you can have that. But, you know, the, uh, it it eliminated the need for ownership to go through things like insurance and maintenance and car registration license, you know, all that stuff that, you know, maybe some people find to be real interesting and fun, but probably most don't. And then the, the tears up, I, I think at the highest level, you could, you know, day to day, you could go in and switch out your BMW vehicle based on what it was that you wanted to do that day. So uh, the, the flexibility of that, and then I'm sure I saw at a car wash the other day, they had a sign up that said, you know, said buy this you know gold program and you get unlimited car washes for you know however long so yeah i we're, we're seeing these business model changes and you said tony some of them are deeply uh you know inner uh, you know enmeshed in technology and others of them i think are just catering to people's notion like what was it harry's shaving club i, I don't want to buy razors anymore so they'll send them to you and what didn't png bought them for three billion dollars yeah. so well you know money it, it, out there it, it is fascinating because if you think about what what's underneath this, right, Bob, it's tech is enabling it. You know, we've said that over yeah. and over. 
but it's also now starting to shift the way people think about, it. you know, there, there's a, a, another adage that you, you hear repeated a lot today is that every company is an audience company today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. And if you think about what, you know, uh, the, the dollar shave club had to do is they had to create an audience first before they could take that step. So the technology enabled the ability to create a subscription business out of razors. But at the same point in time, they had to start to think about that difference very very differently as opposed to my job is to drive you into a retail outlet to buy my brand of, of uh, razor. I have to create an audience and uh, engage an audience. And I think that's a trend as well, Bob, that's underneath these shifting business models. We can see this in the manufacturing industry where the idea of an ongoing service with a customer versus a project with a customer. A lot of people in manufacturing headhunt projects. Projects can have a beginning and an end date, but you know, through the magic of some of these technologies and the kinds of things you and I are describing, a lot of companies are now starting to look at how might I turn this into a recurring revenue service or an ongoing service that you know, has, a, has a deeper um, customization and, and, and um, uh, value for the customer, but also a more stable, right, and, and more consistent revenue uh, that you can invest in on the part of the supplier. Well, Tony, I know you also have some thoughts you want to share about, you know, these, uh, again, additional innovations in manufacturing sort of wrapped up around this Buy American Act. We'll come to those in just a second. But first, I just wanted to offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So, Tony, with a lot of this, you know, uh, you talk about some things having to do with skills gap, other things, but reshoring. What's happening with this? And do you see this trend accelerating, Tony? Well, it's, it, it is, um, you know, it is remarkable to see what's happening. You know, the, this idea, as we've talked about before, and for some of your listeners who might not be familiar with the term, reshoring is exactly what it sounds like. It is the reshoring of uh, manufacturing back to, you know, wh- whatever domestic means in that context, right? So in this case, we're following this from the North American point of view. That movement has been happening for the better part of a decade, Bob, and slowly accelerating, if I can use those terms together, over the course of that decade as, as companies through primarily advanced manufacturing technology, many North American companies became much more competitive on the global stage. There's also been a reevaluation of the actual mathematics underneath the value of offshoring. And I think in some cases, you know, myself and others have debunked some of the original math that suggested if, you know, we can get this component for a dollar somewhere and it costs us $3 to make, it's better to outsource it. Well, shipping the dollar component and dealing with the tariffs and regulations by the time I get it in, I now actually realize it cost me $3.25 and perhaps I shouldn't have uh, outsourced it to begin with. So I think there's two things happening there. I think one is um, a reassessment of that a much more advanced technological infrastructure in US manufacturing in particular. But the third piece too is, is also 
the ability to locate some of these more nimble manufacturing facilities near clusters of customers. So when you run the math on all of that, reshoring is, is without question uh, accelerating. We took a significant jump, Bob, during the pandemic. And some of this was, was based on um, just the remarkable disruption to supply chains and companies realizing I, I can't afford this. I, I cannot afford to have that kind of disruption. Other, other companies realizing I can take advantage of a disruption and I can fulfill a need. You know, so I think both, both are, are, are accurate and true. The United States government is very focused right now on accelerating this phenomenon and, and helping to, um, uh, I was gonna say bring back, but I think it's, it's coming back very quickly, but to, to make sure that US manufacturing retains its strength. And so you, you, you and your listeners have likely heard about the Buy American Act there's a, a, a subset of that called the Berry Amendment. And what it basically does is strongly encourage companies to uh, retain manufacturing here or bring it back to, uh, to uh, the United States. And that has resulted in a whole new level as we can see in sourcing. So if you go on to thomasnet.com, you can now see a Buy American Act filter so that buyers can make sure they can locate the companies that would qualify under the program and, uh, and help. And so I, my, my long-winded answer to your very simple question is, it, it's, it is indeed, reshoring is indeed happening. I think it is uh, accelerating. I also think you're gonna see um, a, a, a continued um, reimagining of manufacturing here in the United States. And by that, I simply mean, it's really the impact of the technologies that you and I keep talking about, Bob, that's allowing for that. But also to the earlier part of our conversation, the reimagining of business models, being more nimble, flexible, um, you know, trying different things that I think will um, allow US manufacturing to not just take a one-time advantage of it, of a, a couple of year acceleration of reshoring. I think this will really be a sustained phenomenon um, and, and a very healthy one. And by the way, as I say this, um, you know, global manufacturing is not gonna go anywhere. All this really means is that you're gonna see a, a lot of movement between the major economic powers. China is not going anywhere as a manufacturing power. And the United States keeping pace there is good for both countries because China is a huge consumer of products and services that are made here in the United States. We will always be consumers of products and services that are made in China. Um, it, it, it is very good for the global uh, economy when the United States can accelerate uh, their position as a major manufacturing country. Well, Tony, I really like that the, the one idea you expressed there about, uh, you know, that the, well, the opposite of the example I mentioned a few minutes ago about Ford, the River Rouge plant, right? One mile long giant plant, raw materials come in, finished thing comes out on the other end. You talked about um, some companies putting a manufacturing facility, production facility around where there's a cluster of customers and uh, that, you know, other businesses, not uh, material intensive businesses have been able to do that sort of thing. But it's interesting now, as you're saying, that technology and other new business models and the reimaginations you mentioned are allowing now manufacturing and industrial companies to do exactly that sort of thing. And that, it, that's got to be a, yeah. 
it's incredible, Bob. And it, you know, for for people that aren't around manufacturing businesses, you know, many of us work in what you and I would consider be knowledge work, software related, where our work is into and output from a computer. When you go to see some of these facilities, you, you, it kind of blows your mind. And again, it's the underlying enabling technologies. Several years ago, we started to spot in our data um, sourcing for small warehouse uh, facilities, literally as in the building of small uh -huh. footprint warehouses. I mean, how, what the heck would be possibly be going on? And we realized we had stumbled into the, the acceleration of this phenomenon. But if you think about it, there's an incredible logic to it. In, in its own way, it's no different than what you see with Amazon, you know, having you know, distribution centers around the country. Um, you know, Walmart stays competitive. Certainly they've gotten very good at e-commerce, but they have 2,400 distribution centers around the country that are close to pockets of customers. So in its own way, it's similar to that. What's changed, Bob, is it used to be, you know, you used to have to have this massive facility, to your point, to manufacture the, the product um, today with advanced technology and particularly now starting to see the influence of things like additive manufacturing, you can have a much more efficient, smaller footprint facility. And you can also now, because of some of the, the quality of the manufacturing going on, you can locate this in areas that your original production might not have been able to for either regulatory reasons or um, environmental reasons, yeah. where you can now locate these in areas um, and, and just open things up. Last connected point I'd make to it, Bob, we're actually seeing a, a fairly brisk movement of uh, companies locating uh, 3D printing or additive manufacturing as it's called in customers' facilities. So, you know, which is a really slick step in the direction you and I are describing and obviously opens up on, you know, whether you want to call that just in time or manufacturing on demand, manufacturing as a service, people are calling it a range of different things. But I think it cuts to this theme you and I are touching on is, you know, is, you know, if we go back through history, we see these cycles where new technologies come and, and it takes a little while before they really start to be harnessed in ways that are truly transformational. Initially, they're just efficiency plays or yeah. you know, some, yeah. some basic improvement on what came before it. We're starting to see in manufacturing just a remarkable era of innovation. And I would say from our vantage point, Bob, we think we're only in the first inning of this. This is uh -huh. just beginning to really play out. Yeah. Well, Tony, if I could, I know uh, one of the other things we just wanted to, to touch on here as you know, the great innovative business models, great uh, you know, leveraging of supply chains and so forth that's going on there to enable these new sorts of innovations that you've described in uh, industrial markets. But I think it's also interesting to see in parallel, right? Some of the biggest software companies in the world are now starting to realize, hey, these uh, relatively horizontal line of business applications that have been the backbone of the software industry for a long time, they're still important, but they're not enough. They are not equipped to deal with these industry specific uh, clusters of innovation, these reimagined business models and so on. So I do think it's fascinating that Salesforce, Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, you know, and certainly some others are now diving deeply into this sort of industry specific applications and manufacturing is right at or near the top of yeah. all of their, uh, all their priorities. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You you and I were talking a little bit before we went on air about, you know, is this a rediscovery of manufacturing? Is this the the dynamic that manufacturing has has uh, has clearly entered a phase where it's being reimagined and redefined, and in terms uh, that we can relate to, growing, you know, as a, as a lucrative sector. I I really don't know. Um, I, I, uh, I, I get regular reach outs from uh, very, very lucrative private equity firms that are starting to quietly either invest in or acquire <laughs> software companies, particularly in and around manufacturing applications and things like that. And they're very yeah. curious about our data and, <laughs> and perspective. But, but I think it, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, Bob, right? Yeah. If, you, if you look at this, if you're a horizontal player, like all the names you just listed, you know, at some point you got to understand that your entry into a marketplace needs to be vertical in your go-to-market approach to it, yeah. right? The technology yeah. is not going to change fundamentally, but you do need to have domain expertise and understanding of stepping into the market. So if, you know, I was someone at Salesforce and dealing with you and you were a decision maker at a manufacturing company, your terminology, your language, your nomenclature, your business model, if I didn't understand that, I'm just schlepping a piece of software yeah. and the odds that I'm going to be successful are pretty slim. So it doesn't surprise me that that's now starting to happen. But, but I do think, um, you know, I, and I, I, I'm struggling to find a, a better term than renaissance. I think it's fascinating to see, you know, manufacturing's hot again. Yeah. You know, in this country. And, and I think, you know, I, I love it because, you know, I joined Thomas. Uh, four years ago it, with the idea that I think this is going to get white hot again <laughs> in this country. And thankfully it did. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's really fun to, to be able to see this industry, um, you know, go through this redefining phase that I think is, is attracting a lot of very uh, appropriate and positive attention. Yeah, uh, Tony, and I, I know from these, these big software companies, right, they're sitting around, they're looking at uh, you know, intense, just absolutely savage competition within that sector. And uh, which is, you know, just a wonderful thing because, uh, you know, as good as each one of them gets moving forward, the other's going to have to add to that. And then it's like, okay, then how do you tie in analytics with that? How do you tie in, you know, data management tools, the traditional kind, but in the new ways with the AI and ML capabilities that are going to offer things that could happen before. And, you know, I know it's, uh, Things like inventory replenishment and supply planning and all is not new stuff, but the power that's going to be put into these things now with these new types of applications is stunning. So your small warehouses and manufacturing clusters in different places and the abilities of companies to, I love what you said about they embed their manufacturing capabilities, perhaps within a customer location, but they're going to have that uh, level of precise knowledge and insight and predictive abilities to be able to do that with a lower risk and then higher value for the customer. So uh, Renaissance restructuring, maybe it's starts with the manufacturing reimagination. It is, it's real and it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's 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 fun to see it happen, Bob. And I think what is you know it, the reason it makes it for a great story as well. You know the the narrative of it is I, I find that for a lot of people, while they don't understand much about the modern manufacturing industry unless you're directly involved in it, everybody has a sense of it, uh -huh. Uh -huh. primarily because they can relate to the output. 
Yeah. You know, most everybody has a car. Most everybody, you know, has products and services that when you get them thinking about it, they realize, oh, this, this computer that I'm talking to you on actually came out of one of those manufacturing <laughs> facilities. And somebody yeah. had to, you know, source the steel and they had to source the glass and they had to put it together and they had to get the PCB boards and the chips and the components and, you know, manufacture these products and services. And so I think as, as, um, as our imagination starts to have its way with the, the modern manufacturing industry, I think for the average consumer, what I'm, I'm hoping also happens is they start to see the industry for what it really is today versus perhaps a dated point of yes. view of that black and white 1935 photograph of a manufacturing facility. But understand that today, boy, it's, it's, it's a high tech, um, you know, technology rich, software-oriented world that uh, that I think a lot of people would find very, very exciting. Yeah, Tony, if I could offer just, you know, uh, two quick examples of that from where I live here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think it was about 110 years ago, but the, the uh, journalist H.L. Mencken referred to Pittsburgh as hell with the lid torn off. And uh, <laughs> a lot wow. of stuff was getting made here and it was, it, it was a pretty yeah. grim place, you know, at, at, at those times. And then one of the things we see in this neighborhood, I, we live not far from Carnegie Mellon University and the, a lot of the, the stuff they're doing there with robotics and AI and machine learning, but a couple of the car companies have their driverless car operations around here. So we, we regularly see these things with those crazy uh, sensors and all that technology up on the roof of these things. So uh, this, this turning, this uh, reimagination of things, this renaissance, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And to see it happening, uh, around the country, around the world, those interlinkages, you know, as you described across the globe, but that there is this chance within the United States. And I would think, Tony, it's one of those things too, that, you know, some of the great young talent and these incredible minds, people coming out and, you know, with data science and machine learning degrees and, you know, those sorts of ideas that they're going to be drawn to that and say, you know, can I be the person who creates the next this or you know whatever yeah. it was that was never done before especially as you said like you get tesla becomes even better known you get apple perhaps in some ways being involved in the transportation or mobility business so it, it's just a, a a wild wild new future coming up well i i think you know bob and it's what it, you just said it better than i did it's one of the reasons that i i think this this um redefining the manufacturing industry is really so important for the manufacturing industry because look we all um, we all compete for talent yeah. at the end of the day and and you know if if we can't help the next generation of talent see the opportunity in the markets we're in we're, we're doomed I mean it, re it really is a, a huge challenge so the skills shortage is very real in in manufacturing everywhere but certainly in in, uh, in North America, and, and I think, you know, today that redefining of what a manufacturer is, you know, people in their minds don't think of Apple as a manufacturing company. They don't think of Microsoft as a manufacturing company. They don't think of Amazon as a manufacturing company. But if you really climb up underneath what they're doing, uh -huh. they are as much of a manufacturer as many other companies that you would think of as much more traditional manufacturers. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a great thing to get out there. Because as young people particularly start to think about, you know, and imagine what their future might look like, I think what manufacturing provides for them that some other technology-rich industries do not 
which is the, the I guess what I'd call it, Bob, is almost the, the combination of the maker movement. You're actually right. making something. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know I, I always, you know, I'm sure I've used it with you. I always use that joke of, you know, you're, you're heading home on the subway on Friday and you're thinking to yourself, man, can't wait to get home to tell everybody about this spreadsheet that I <laughs> built this week. It's a killer. This thing was fantastic. It had macros and all kinds of pivots and oh my God, it was incredible versus, hey, take a look at this. I actually built this or look at that car. My components that yeah. I build go in that car. And you know, yeah. I'm having fun with the conversation, obviously, Bob, but I think there's something to that that's yeah. not just generational. We can all relate yeah. to that. But we believe at least we're seeing in the millennial generation that's, that's now in the decision-making body inside most every company out there, um, maybe is, is reaching for that more so than the generation ahead of them was. Mm -hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. they, they want that satisfaction of I produced something or I'm a part of the production of something versus I'm passing paper back and forth or I'm just simply transitioning knowledge back and forth. And I'm not, I, I'm intentionally making that sound negative. I don't mean to, but um, I, I think there's something that, that you and I are describing here that we don't completely understand that may be innate in us that we want to produce things. Yes. And if we can now combine those, can we combine knowledge work in the production of a good Right. Uh, wow. Isn't that a, you know, isn't that a satisfactory vocation and, and perhaps one that could be incredibly attractive to young people? Yeah. Yeah. No, Tony is beautifully said, beautifully said. And I, I do want to, you know, uh, wrap up here. I, I think it's industrial revolution. You can put a number on it, 4050, 12, yeah. you know, whatever it is that is happening. And it is always wonderful Tony, to get your perspectives on this, because I think with your backgrounds in a number of fields, uh, you know, even bringing up that point today about how every company has to be an audience company first, right? There's, there's so much going on in these different entry points. It's been wonderful as always, Tony. And thank you so much for sharing some of uh, Thomas Nett's insights on that and, uh, and your own perspectives on where things are headed. Hey, Bob, thanks. Always a blast to be on the show and look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thanks, Tony. And thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. There's lots going on in the world today. It is also, uh, we're a couple of days into springtime. So for us in the Northeast, this is wonderful. We've, we've uh, gotten to the end of an, what seemed to be an endless winter. Good days ahead for everybody. Thank you so much for being with us.